Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. For this episode, we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about a topic that I've actually been avoiding for a while. And part of the reason is it's one of those topics that, although I think it's definitely worth covering, I run the risk of offending some people with some of the examples I'm going to give. And you'll see when I get into it. And hopefully I'll explain it in a way that you realize I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm not trying to put anybody down. But there are times where this problem comes into play that makes you know what I do a little more difficult. So anyway, what we're going to talk about today is the anthropomorphization of tarantulas. Now, when you anthropomorphize something, it's when basically you assign or attribute human characteristics, traits, or emotions to non-human entities. So I always point to the Disney cartoons or regular cartoons. We take animals, we give them human traits, and obviously this is an extreme example of it, and we're not going there. But, you know, think you're Scooby-Doo, Ren and Stimpy, Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, whatever. We take animals and we give them human traits. It doesn't have to be to the extent that they're, you know, walking around, talking, communicating, but it can, believe me, with the tarantula community, it can get to the point where we're assigning tarantulas some traits that really just aren't there. Now, normally, it's very harmless, and normally, it's not a big deal. There are a lot of people, and I think all of us, it, it's a basic human need. When you get something that you care about, you start applying, you know, human traits to it. So, for example, take our dogs. A lot of times, we're trying to, you know... We like to talk to, about our dogs. We like to talk to our dogs. We like to pretend like our dogs are actually human beings just like us. I know we refer to them as our kids here, and we constantly joke that here we don't have four kids. We have eight kids because we have the four kids and we have the four dogs. But, I mean, just think of some of the stuff you do when you talk to your dog and you pretend like they're actually understanding you and listening, even though they probably just have no idea what you're talking about. So I think in some respects, it's not a bad thing. But I'm going to use this example because I got hit twice this week with comments on YouTube videos that were basically criticized the fact that I don't handle or interact with my tarantulas. One of them was, and I don't want, I'm not going to use the exact, a lot of times I'll read what people say, but one of the people was very, very reasonable. I think they were just asking a legitimate question and basically was along the lines of, do you think the reason why you have to be so careful during rehousing and you can't just pick them up is because there's no human contact that they brought up the fact that like you take an, another pet, like a dog. And if you take the dog and you put it outside and you don't go near it and you don't touch it, of course, it's going to be scared of you. Of course, it's going to growl. Of course, it might have a propensity to bite. Could that be the same thing that you're doing with tarantulas? So I don't think it was, this person wasn't saying this was the issue. They were kind of throwing it out. Another one came onto my video where I did the room tour and basically said, you should be ashamed of yourself. All those unloved animals kept in little plastic boxes with no attention. That's absolutely cruel. And again, pretending like tarantulas are animals that are lamenting the fact that they're sitting in these boxes and not being handled, which is ridiculous. And I'll get into that more in a moment. So the, the second person was a little more nasty and I came back and I was like, listen here, and this is where it gets sticky because when you try to defend yourself in one of these situations, and this is, again, one of the reasons why I've shied away from this topic. When you try to defend yourself through somebody who thoroughly believes that they are correct, even though this, as it turned out, this individual doesn't even keep tarantulas. They were wandering around. They're like, this is disgusting. You're putting them in these little boxes, and they get no contact, no human interaction. They get no love, and it was like, oh, you really haven't spent a lot of time around tarantulas, have you? But when you come back and try to explain yourself logically and go, listen, 
I get where you're coming from with this, from with this, but these are not particularly animals that crave human attention. They don't. And so I ended up writing this huge long, it was like an essay trying to respond to them. And unfortunately, she just didn't believe me. That's what it came down to. She Her response was, that's a great way of justifying the fact that you don't want to touch them. How do you know that? Have you done studies on these? And, you know, no, I haven't. And no, there haven't been a really, a lot of studies done on tarantula emotional intelligence. But I think for those of us who've kept them for many, many years, we've seen enough observations with our own eyes to recognize that these aren't the types of animals that are going to caught into attention. So these are spots. This is this was the one that kind of put me over the edge because I've been doing uh, uh, getting a lot of comments lately and I spend a lot of time answering comments and questions and stuff. And again, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I want to make that very, very clear. But there are some times where comments are made that you kind of just, uh, I'll the running joke is I'll call it Billy and I'll read it out to her and I'll go, I don't even know how to respond to this. I don't even know where to start. And when you've been doing it long enough and talking to people about tarantulas long enough, you start to recognize the ones that you're going to walk into and it's going to be in defensible. Like they're not going to take your word for it. It's going to come down to they believe that they feel like a human being, that they have these emotions and you're not going to be able to change their mind. So I started thinking about, you know what, in the very least, instead of, and this has happened a few times over the year, several times, usually over the course of the year, I'll get some of these comments and it's usually I'm scrambling to write out these big long things to clarify. So I figure why not address it in a podcast so that that way, once again, and that's what I love about these podcasts lately is not only are they fun and I get to talk about things in more detail, but they kind of allow me to bank up responses to people that are coming on that kind of really, I'm able to really thoroughly cover the topic, lay it all out there. And if they don't believe me after that, so be it. We don't have to have a conversation anymore because that's all I've got. So again, I don't, I want to make it very clear as we go through this because I've, I've spoken to many people over the years and I've spoken to people that will tell me stories about how their tarantula runs up to them and stuff. I am not in any way, shape or form making fun of you. I am not in any way, shape or form. Dis- disregarding what you've seen with your own eyes. And I will say, I want to make this very, very clear. I do think we have a lot to learn about tarantula intelligence. I don't think we're currently at a point where we kind of think of them as kind of, well, the majority of us as animals that aren't capable of a lot of thought, aren't capable of a high degree of learning, do not have any emotional intelligence. And maybe that changes. So I don't want it to... I don't want to appear like I'm saying we will never find out otherwise, but I can just say from my own experiences, I would have to see some really compelling data to really change my mind about what I do think they can learn. They have conditioned responses, and I'll get into that as we get deeper into the podcast, but I just – I don't see the emotional connections that some folks are trying to see. And again, I'm an animal lover and I want to preface this with the fact that I have raised many, many, many types of animals over the years from farm animals to exotics. And I have seen various signs in other animals of them appreciating contact or obviously like you know, goats, are one of my favorite animals on the planet, almost like dogs where they like to play, they like to be pet. And then you have other animals that like snakes that I have seen signs that snakes can be con- to recognize when you're coming in with food. I just haven't seen a lot of this with tarantulas. So I, I'm throwing that out there that this isn't me condemning anybody. This isn't me making fun of anybody, but I do think it's finally come time for me to discuss it. So anyway, obviously we're not going to talk about Scooby-Doo and Red and Stimpy in this one. We're going to talk about tarantulas. And I think the big desire for people is to connect with these pets. And one thing that I've noticed is that people that generally love animals, they want animals to reflect that, to reciprocate that love back to them. Animal lovers can sit there with a 
hermit crab and convince themselves that that hermit crab loves them, recognizes them, and they have some type of relationship. And I get that. And I'm kind of the same. And I'll, I'll throw out there because if you watch my videos, I talk to my spiders all the time. They don't hear me. They probably they feel the vibration of my voice, but they don't hear me. But it makes it comforts me. You like to think you have a connection with them. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I've seen some things people like, you got to stop doing that. It's bad. No, it's not always bad. When it becomes bad is when it causes you to do things that put you or the spider at risk. So let's give some examples of things I've heard over the years that are people obviously anthropomorphizing their tarantulas. A couple, the big one that I that comes off the top of my head that you'll see a lot, the ping pong balls. I get this asked this question every once in a while where somebody will come on and go, should I give them a ping pong ball to play with? I know they need exercise and that they enjoy playing with them. The ping pong ball one cracks me up because you watch the tarantulas and it's more like what the heck is this thing in my air? They're trying to get rid of it. Now, tarantulas will explore their environments. They will obviously dig burrows. They will rearrange stuff. If anybody's kept the G pokerpies, you can watch a spider that never seems to be satisfied with what they've constructed as far as a burrow or home. They're constantly moving stuff. Now you drop this white ball in the middle of it. They go to push it. It rolls back. They have no idea what it is. It's them kind of exploring and figuring out. Well, over the years, it's become this thing where you put the balls in there and the tarantulas quote unquote play with them. And I had people tell me they are absolutely convinced the tarantulas love doing it. It's my favorite is it's healthy because it gives them exercise. Now, the problem with that is tarantulas are ambush predators. They're masters of conserving energy. It's one of the reasons why they live so long. They don't know when they're going to get their next meal. So when they grab the meal, they expend as little energy as possible, get the meal, eat it, and then they sit there in their burrow. They're not out wandering around unless they're males. Males will obviously wander around. That's why they get run down so quickly. But the majority of females stay right by their burrows. They might come out a little ways to go a little hunting, wait to see if anything comes by, but then they're right back in their burrows. They're not running around chasing preys like cheetahs or lions. So the idea that they need exercise is kind of ridiculous. It's You can put one of those balls in there with them. And I've had people ask me, do you think this is a good idea? My gut instinct says, no, it's probably, you know, at the best, the tarantula is just kind of mindlessly moving it around. At worst, it's annoying the tarantula because like, what the heck is this thing in my area? And they don't need exercise. You're you're causing your animal to expel energy needlessly to move this ball around. But that's one that pops up quite a bit. I had somebody, it was a couple of years ago and somebody came on and, and it, again, talking about those comments that you feel like you don't even want to address because you're not sure how to go about it. They're like, what you should really try to do is put a ping pong ball in there. I put one in with mine and she plays with it and she loves it. And when I take the ping pong ball out, she waits for it. And it's like, you're making them sound like a dog. Dogs will play. Dogs will play. Obviously, everybody knows this. Dogs will play fetch. They'll play with balls. They'll play with toys. They do play. They get stimulated out of it. Dogs do need exercise. You do need to take them out, run them around. Spiders do not. And so when that's one of those situations where, again, I don't think it's hurt, it's it's going to harm the animal, but I really, A, at the best, I don't think it does anything for them. At the least, I think it's probably causing them to waste a lot of energy. Like they're not, I don't think they're sitting there going, oh good, here's the giant white ball again. It's more like, let me get this thing out of my way. Another thing that I've heard recently quite a bit is the fact that they know my voice. I've had several people tell me my tarantulas, when they hear me walk into the room and they hear my voice, they know it's going to be feeding time. Now, I'm not completely... I, I I could almost believe part of this because uh, little known fact, the tarantulas obviously don't have ears, but they can sense the vibrations and they can essentially hear using the vibrations the way those waves hit the hairs on their legs and such. So they can, they've proven, and I believe they did a study with the jumping spider 
P. Regius, I think it was, where they realized they were basically registering how its brain worked, and they realized that when somebody clapped from across the room, there was a deeper area of its brain being engaged where it was registering that as sound, not just vibration, but as sound. And then they tried dulling it. I believe they put like water droplets on the legs, and they realized that once the hairs on the legs were neutralized by the water droplets, they stopped registering the noise. So they're essentially hearing in a way. Now, the idea is they're not hearing like you and I would listen to music and hear all the different, you know, they're not hearing the drums, they're not hearing the bass, they're not hearing the guitars, they're not hearing the lead singer. They're hearing like muffled, staticky. It's not registering the same way we would normally hear. So they're not necessarily going to differentiate my voice from my brother's voice or my son's voice. What they do tend to hear more are the lower frequencies. So they're going to hear like somebody, for example, a male with a bassy voice. And I've often talked to Billy about the fact that I wonder if while I'm talking, my voice does have a little bit of a bass to it, that if they're kind of hearing that, but I don't think they're like, oh, here's Tom's big spiders. He's working with us. Yay. It could just be they're red registering that a human's in the room. They're hearing it. They're not sure what it is, but they're hearing it. And that's about it. It's a, it's a stimulus. Now, whether or not, and that's the thing that I found interesting is I have, one of the things I have seen and I have heard people kind of do little experiments in their home with, or whether or not they can be conditioned to recognize that food's coming. The jury's still out with this, for this one for me. Although I will say I always bring up my avicular, well, originally it was avicularia versicolor, my carabina versicolor now, but it was avicularia back in the day when it was a sling. It had the funnel web going up, the little web going up the side of its enclosure. It would never come down to the bottom. So what I would do when I fed her, is I would open up, it was one of the AMAC boxes flipped upside down. I would open up, lay it on its side, and I would take a roach and put it at the end of the funnel, so the little opening. And at first, she wouldn't do it. She'd kind of run from it, like, oh my gosh, something's trying to get in here. Well, after a while of doing this, she started running right to the edge of that and waiting for me. And it was it was pretty blatant that she instead of hiding, was recognizing that when this series of events happen, there's probably going to be food nearby. Now, whether she recognized, hey, here comes my human and he's going to drop some food in and I'm going to, I don't think it's that I think there's something that triggers them I mean these guys have obviously survived millions of years this is going to be an opportune situation for me to procure food. I think that's what it comes down to. Something triggers. It's not a thought process. It's more instinctual. This stimuli happens. I usually end up fed and that's about it. So I have seen signs that they can be conditioned like that. So could conceivably, if you keep them in a room where they're away from people and all of a sudden, every time they hear a voice, they get food, could they? I, I guess they could, but I've also had people tell me that there's come when they call them and recognize their names. I don't believe that. I'm sorry. They're not, they're not registering human language. Heck, they've talked about the fact that Dogs have been obviously evolved over centuries of living with humans to recognize certain voice patterns, body language, and even their names to a point. But those are animals that have been around us. They have obviously a keen sense of hearing and they've been around us for thousands of years. The idea that spiders would suddenly start to be able to interpret human speech is kind of silly in my opinion, but who knows? You know, it's something that still needs to be studied. Another one that comes up quite a bit that kind of I wish this would, would die because this is the one where I have a very difficult time. I'm responding to comments where they bring this up is the fact that people will come up and say, my tarantula likes to cuddle. I've had many, many people over the years tell me that, hey, my tarantula loves cuddling. I take it out. I watch TV with it. She stands in my hand. She wants to climb up on my shoulder and all these stories about it. And I'm sorry, they just don't have the emotional intelligence for it. That's my opinion. Again, we haven't 
proved it one way or another, but having worked with them and knowing what I know about arachnid biology and intelligence, it doesn't seem to me that a tarantula would appreciate that. Who knows what's going through its head when it's doing that? And again, I think of my H. chilensis, who is probably the quote-unquote friendliest spider I have. It seems to be very inquisitive and curious, and she'll come out, and she does this thing where she'll climb out and sit in my hand. Now, whether that's her, I could see how somebody would look at that, look at the spider just sitting calmly in the hand, go, look at she loves being there, or whether she just likes the warmth, or if she feels secure, or if she's like, this is a nice place to sit, or if there's no thought whatsoever, it's just something that tells her body this is a good place to, to be right now. Who knows what it is? I just don't see the emotional intelligence with these animals to form bonds with their keepers, to form relationships where they actually reciprocate those types of emotions. It just doesn't seem to be in their makeup. Now, the problem with some of these is that in, you know, having somebody think that their tarantula likes to cuddle in, in unto itself is not a bad thing. You know, if, if they're getting joy out of it, I've talked with many people that don't have dogs, don't have cats, don't have the more cuddly animals that actually will show you affection, and they get their affection by keeping these tarantulas and kind of projecting these types of emotions on them, it, it, that's not necessarily a bad thing. When it gets to be a bad thing is when people start acting in ways that put the tarantulas at risk or start doing things that not they don't realize have no benefit for the tarantula or could make things difficult for the tarantula. So, for example, the likes to cuddle thing. We have I've heard many people over the years that you've got to do this. That leads to people looking at my collection or other hobbyist collections and going, wait a minute, why are you re- housing them using a cup. Why don't you just reach in there and pick it up? I've had this on old world videos. I believe one of the comments might be on an OBT. And I said, well, no, this is an old world species. The bite can be particularly bad. I went through my whole spiel, how I use the same technique with all my tarantulas just getting good habits and how they don't like to be picked up. And and they were disgusted. Well, maybe if you handled it more. And I'm like, well, hold on a minute. This is an old world species. They can have bites that can be debilitating. I went through the the whole thing talking about the different bites and the difference between old world and new world they didn't care in their mind because they had like i don't know what it was a viable pelosum that was cuddly all spiders were potentially cuddly potentially cuddly and if you don't do your work as a keeper and make sure that they feel human compassion and they they touch you and they feel you and you get to have quality hands-on time with them then they're going to go feral and mean and basically and and this is i don't know how many people out there have encountered this theory before, but there are quite a few people out there that believe that the reason why they're so nasty is because they haven't been tamed down. They don't recognize that they're wild animals, that their capacity to learn is limited, the fact that they haven't been around us as long as some of our mammalian pets, and they're, in their minds, the only reason we're getting nasty animals that bite is because we're not handling them. So... That makes it difficult. That puts people in a spot, I think, and that can make people make care decisions that could be disastrous. I spoke to a keeper once. I believe it was a young lady, probably in her teens, who had picked up a B. albopelosum, and she had had it for several years, loved it, apparently very, very laid back. You know, your typical B. albo or T. albopelosus now, sorry, old habits die hard, and she absolutely adored the spider. And she said what she would do is at night when she was playing around social media, sitting in our bed watching TV and, you know, texting her friends, whatever, she would take the tarantula out and put it on her lap and the tarantula would just sit there. And in her mind, she was watching TV. She liked the lights from the TV. She liked the lights from her phone. They just had a great relationship. Well, she fell asleep one night 
and rolled over on the tarantula and basically crushed it and killed it. And she was devastated. Absolutely. And I felt bad. And I, you know, part of me was like, I'm hearing this whole story and I'm like, oh God, oh God, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. And then it went there. But I felt terribly for her. So I was trying to like console her and be like, you know what? Because a lot of times when people come to me with tarantula deaths, my big thing is like, don't blame yourself. I don't want people driven out of the hobby because they think they did something so egregious that they don't deserve to keep the animals anymore. What I want them to do is learn from the experience. Like, all right, you did something that wasn't right. Probably should have done some research, probably should have known better. However, let's look at making sure this doesn't happen again. And I was trying to kind of like console her while at the same time explain, all right, here's the deal. Your tarantula, unfortunately, didn't, wasn't interested in Instagram wasn't in- interested in the movie you were watching. It wasn't really even interested in being around you. That was just kind of you putting human characteristics on it, and it kind of put it in a danger. You can't cuddle with it like you would a dog or a cat or a ferret or whatever furry animal you might want to bring in your bed to cuddle with while you're just chilling out in the evening. And she was uh, got a little upset with me because she's like, "But it loved it. I, I like that was how we bonded." So. There's one of those spots where anthropomorphizing the animals can lead to a dangerous situation for the animal. Again, I'm not turning this into an anti-handling thing. You guys hopefully by now know my opinion on that. I'm kind of ambivalent. I don't handle myself, I, but I don't get on people to do. But this is a spot where it's taken to extreme and it ends up with the animal getting harmed. And that's the thing. We always talk about those of us who don't handle always look at it as, what am I going to get out of it? What is the animal going to get out of it? And I think this is where we run into problems because the people, a lot of the people that handle think the animal is actually getting something out of it. That's the problem. They they don't want to stop handling because they think this is creating a bond. They're taming the animal down. The animal likes that attention. I think that's one of those spots where it can become an issue, where the giving assigning that animal human emotions and human characteristics can actually put it in danger. Now, a lot of these issues tend to be more of, or a lot of the the anthropomorphizing tends to come more from folks who are just getting into the hobby. They're used to keeping, you know, your typical furry pets. And we've talked before about how they're totally different animals, how people want to feed them every day and and take them out and handle them because they're used to other types of pets. But, But the problem is we start to carry over some of those expectations we have even with dogs and cats. And... It sometimes leads people to see something, not recognize it for what it is, and then come up with a totally different conclusion for why it's happening. Kind of like the false positive, like, oh, I did this, this happened, so therefore this must be what's going on. So for example for that, to make it a little more clear than that terrible analogy, I had an individual that picked up a Fonapelma Samani from a pet store. This one was kind of apparently defensive. Rather, it wouldn't settle into its tank. And she had it. There was a a myriad of issues with this, but it was in a huge tank. And it was basically when she'd go to open the tank and add water, it was going nuts. Well, she apparently went to spray the tank and she sprayed the spider. And she was telling me, yeah, my spider actually enjoys taking a bath. And I think it's the cutest little thing. So I was like, what? So like, what do you mean it's taking a bath? What, what, what is, how does it take a bath? And I thought maybe she was talking about it washing itself and they groom themselves. No, what had happened was while spraying the tank one day, she had, the spider had gotten nasty. So she sprayed the spider and the spider immediately recoiled and did the stress pose where it cur- pulls its knees up over its carapace and its eyes and its body to protect itself and calm completely down. Now, anybody that I had her send a picture of the spider after she did it, and it was this poor, sodden, wet spider all curled up, scrunched up as much as it could in a stress pose because she had soaked it down with a spray bottle. And in her mind, 
it liked it. It was calm. So she said, yeah, so every time I go in there now to spray it down, I spray the spider down because it immediately calms down and gets its bath and its shower and it's happy. And then I'll drop some food in and it's perfectly okay. So I had to go back and explain what you're seeing is a stress posture there. That is not the spider going, hey, this is nice. That is a spider going, this crazy woman is going to kill me and drown me with water. And trying to get her to understand that what she saw as a very positive thing was actually a very negative thing. I said, if you want it to not be defensive, you got to put a hide in there, maybe a starter burrow instead of just a barren. It was, there was Again, there were a myriad of issues with the enclosure, but to see what she came up with and how that was like her bond. She was all excited. Like, I found a way to bond it. Have you ever seen this with your spiders? You spray them down and they totally cower. So there's a situation there where somebody doesn't have the background knowledge to not make that false positive connection, to not see that the response she was getting was not the response she thought she was getting. She wasn't getting a spider that was calmed down because it was enjoying it. She was getting a spider that was terrified. A lot of times in education, when we have students that have behavioral issues, we have to do a behavior intervention plan. We have to do something that's called an FBA, where we go in and basically analyze. We find the behavior, and then we find what's setting off the behavior, the antecedent, and then we go back and try to figure out what exactly is causing it. So it's a way to break down behaviors to go, Johnny's not just not acting out because Johnny is a jerk or undisciplined. Johnny's acting out because in math class, he's embarrassed because he doesn't know his math facts and he'd rather get sent to the principal. That principle allows us, we can kind of carry that over to tarantulas and start to recognize some of this stuff, especially if we don't just rely on what we're seeing with our own eyes and our own little microcosm and our own little collections and go out and do some research and see what other people have seen. And again, I did a whole podcast about this before, about how important it is to for, for the collective community to share their experiences so that other people can look at them with a different eye, compare them to stuff they've seen in their collections and make sure that we're getting the right interpretation of what we're seeing. It's, we can't ever rely. I, I, and I sometimes report stuff in my videos that it's like, this is what I saw. This isn't me telling you this is fact. This is me going, all right, I saw this. Who else can verify this? For example, I point out the P. muticus situation where I was seeing that I thought mine were burying themselves and not surfacing and eating. And I put that out there partially to show my share my experiences, but more importantly, to see if other people back that up, that supported that. Did you see the same thing? So I think, again, with the anthropomorphizing of the tarantulas, we can set ourselves up for these situations where we look at a series of events or a series of circumstances and we kind of apply human logic to it and it causes us to miss the real root of the problem. And in other instances, it can actually cause people to criticize proper care or cage setup, which can be rather irritating. So a lot of times I'll get people come on and they'll criticize my setups and like, you need to do something much more natural. I had somebody the other day tell me I should have a background that shows a forest because that's going to make the tarantula feel more comfortable because I don't know if you know this, they usually live on forest floors. So they're not used to seeing your wallpaper. And I thought that was kind of silly because tarantulas don't have the best eyesight, generally speaking. And that's more like aesthetics. That's a human thing. We're not, these animals aren't sitting in their enclosures, staring around them going, my Lord, this is just a terrible, terrible view. I need something better. That's not how they operate. The majority of them sit in their burrows all day long. They don't come out. Now, again, does that mean we should give them barren enclosures? No. When you set up an enclosure, the fixings inside the enclosure have a purpose. You give them a hide and a starter burrow so they can have security. You give them fake plants or real plants, again, so they have security and anchor points for webbing. They can go out and about when they venture a little bit out of their burrow and feel 
feel safe because they're not completely exposed. You give them a water dish because, well, they like to drink. Things of that nature. If you want to give them a cork background, totally fine. It gives them a little more security once again. But to say that the, the spiders with the cork backgrounds are happier because they have more to look at or that it's more aesthetically pleasing, that's that's not true. I'm sorry. I just, I don't believe that one. But that's another spot where it can come in. And I've seen people with setups that are just... <laughs> unbelievably busy like i'd my favorite was somebody put theirs in a it was a spongebob i believe it was spongebob's pineapple if i remember correctly that was the high they found a pineapple for a fish tank and they had altered it and dremeled it out so it was a little bit bigger opening and she was talking about how much it absolutely loves its pineapple and the the hide she had it in before was the hubba hut the upside down the it's basically half of a log hollowed out and she was like since i gave it this one it's in it all the time it webbed up it absolutely loves its sponge i think it's because of the bright colors and then i was trying to tactfully explain, well, it's not because of the bright colors. The hubba huts are open at both ends. So when a spider gets in there, and, and it was a big hubba hut, so the spider was pretty much swimming in that that den that she provided, that hide. And I said the SpongeBob container only offered one opening. It was a smaller, tighter opening. The inside of the thing was kind of cramped, and it liked that better because it felt more secure. It had nothing to do with the fact that it was a bright pineapple with SpongeBob on it. But instead had everything to do with the fact that it was a more comfortable and appropriate hide for this spider. It felt more comfortable in there, more protected. So where this became a problem and where this becomes an issue is that she had the tarantula in an enclosure that offered about 12 inches of height. She only had a couple inches of substrate in the tank with it. And the top of the pineapple was pointed, had these little, and it was a hard plastic or resin sculpture and it had pointy things on the top of it and if the spider climbed this thing presented a hazard to the spider should it climb and fall and one of the pictures she showed me the spider was indeed climbing the side of the enclosure so then the discussion turned to well I know you like the hide but you need to add more substrate in there and her problem was if she added more substrate she couldn't fit in the pineapple and trying to explain that listen it's not the pineapple she was convinced the tarantula loved the pineapple, not the hide, not the the area it offered it to feel secure. It was the pineapple itself. It loved the colors. It loved the brain. He loved SpongeBob. So now we're in a discussion where the spider technically is in an unsafe environment because we believe that the spider likes the aesthetics of a certain hide that's provided to him that you couldn't just add some more substrate get a hide that offers the same type of dimensions i mean i get it and sometimes it's like i told her i go could we could you lean it over could you lean it over and half bury it she's like it wouldn't look right it's supposed to stand straight up so there's a situation where it kind of assigning the spider these human characteristics like the spider is going i love the looks of this house i'm going to make this my house this my home that kind of impeded her ability to provide proper care. So that's one of those areas where, again, it turns it turns from being something harmless and just makes us appreciate our animals more to something that can actually inhibit our ability to provide them for the, the right surroundings. The other one that I've received quite a bit over the years that can be potentially dangerous and kind of horrifies me is there is a theory out there, usually among people that are just getting into the hobby, that the reason why old world tarantulas are so defensive and skittish is because nobody is handling them, that it's our fault as keepers that we're not taming them down. And I've got I've received that one quite a few times and it, it's frustrating sometimes to try to defend this point because, again, could they be tamed down? There are people out there that feel like they have tame ones that they can handle. They have ones that they've worked with that seem to be tractable. But again, I think that comes down to my saying that I put on all my videos 
Temperament may vary from species to species and from specimen to specimen. So somebody could have a very defensive OBT and somebody could have one like mine that if it started climbing out of its enclosure and I put my hand out, it would probably climb right into it. However, here is my argument with that where people say, I do think that there is evidence, compelling evidence, but something would have to be done large scale to really prove that there's compelling evidence out there that some people have had luck kind of quote unquote taming theirs down, that through repeated handling, they're conditioned to recognize that the human is not a threat, that they can be handled. However, the one big thing that nobody's ever been able to explain to me is the fact that I have talked to many people over the years, many, many, many people who have had a tarantula that was tractable, calm, laid back, they can handle it, and then it molts. And then what happens? You have a tarantula suddenly that's defensive, that's slapping at everything. I just had somebody email me the other day about a G. Polkropies that they had had for years. It hit about the seven inch mark, and now it's crazy. And they like, I have spent years with this spider that it would just crawl into my hand and sit there. It was like the, the nicest little spider you'd ever want to have. And now it's a bloodthirsty monster. And there's a situation where that kind of discounts the fact that they can learn these behaviors. Because if you take a dog and you train, you tame your dog down, it's cuddly, it's in your lap, it's giving you kisses, and then it has its shed. Like it, and obviously, it's you can't really compare because they just shed hair during winter and summer. But I'm thinking of something, you know, obviously, dogs just grow naturally. They don't change their whole body. They don't slip out of their old skin. But just imagine your, your dog suddenly sheds for the winter and it turns vicious. That doesn't happen. Once they learn something, they've pretty much learned it. However, why would a spider that has been tame all along suddenly change its disposition. So that's something that I think should always be in the back of our minds that even during that molt cycle, if you manage to tame your spider down, that could change at any time. And it happens quite a bit. It's it's a frequent occurrence. And I get people that will message me and I had somebody email not that long ago that was like, listen, I don't understand why this happened. What did I do wrong? It was so tame and now I can't go anywhere near it. I go to fill its water dish, it attacks the water dish. That's the thing that kind of makes it so that we can't really, I hate to say it, can't really trust them. So you could have an old world that you've tamed down completely, but then you have to keep in the back of your mind that that could change at any time. So it's not like you can really build and, and establish a relationship. And I think, again, that's that assigning human characteristics. My spider is tolerating me is a lot different from my spider loves me, recognizes me as a benevolent entity and wants to spend physical time with me. Those are two entirely different things. Like I tried to explain to somebody when I was talking about the fact that my C versicolor, and we'll go back to that when my little sling would come out and take food. That wasn't so much the spider going, oh, here comes Tom, my benevolent keeper who is coming to bring me food. That was a spider that somehow had something triggered in it that it recognized when the container it was in went horizontal instead of vertical, then there's probably going to be food present. That had nothing to do with me. It wasn't recognizing me as somebody providing me as food. It was recognizing that these triggers were letting it know that food was probably coming. It's a big difference. And I think that's where we get ourselves in trouble sometimes. I think that's where folks that think that the whole issue with old worlds, and I had a guy literally tell me, my whole my theory is the whole issue with old worlds is they just haven't been tamed down yet. Once we start taming them down and we have babies with those tamed down ones, they'll be perfectly fine. I just don't see it. I just that's their natural defense. A lot of these guys live in areas where humans would be predators for them. They would be something they would have to be concerned with. So they're not hardwired to go, oh, here comes Tom. He's gonna feed me crickets. He's gonna keep my cage clean. He's gonna give me water. I really want to cuddle with him. It just doesn't work that way. 
Could there be research down the road that proves that wrong? I I hope so. I hope it's something somebody studies someday. Again, I do think, and I want to go back to my original point, that I don't think there has been enough research done on what type of intelligence they have, what level of intelligence, or if there's any emotional intelligence. I haven't necessarily seen signs of it. It's kind of like when you watch those ghost hunting shows and they try to debunk everything. It's like, all right, you sit there and think something came down in the attic because there's a ghost. I think there was probably a squirrel. It's the same thing with the spiders. I look at it and go, all right, sure, the spider's running to the edge of the container because it's basically recognizing when that container opens up and the air patterns change that there's usually food present. It's not running to the edge of the container to say hello to me as much as I would love the fact that that might be the case. And I think of my Entropepi that's one that runs right to the edge of the container. I'd love to pretend like she's doing that because she misses me and wants to say hi, wherein in fact, she's probably just been conditioned to recognize that opens up. There's probably food coming in. So there were spots there, but the old world's another spot where it becomes tricky because you don't. And the other thing is, it's like I feel like sometimes when I do this, I'm like telling a child that there's no such thing as Santa Claus. It's that level when you come down on people because they strongly, the ones I speak to, strongly believe this, and that's part of their enjoyment of the hobby. They feel like these animals are reciprocating some of those human emotions of you know love or whatever. And it's tough to sit there and tell somebody that is convinced that their T. Alba Pelosum loves sitting on their desk to watch their computer because I had one case where the person's office was cold and she was trying to do without heat. So I said, you know what, why don't you measure some of the, you know, the shelves? Do you have any shelves in the room? She's like, yeah, I have a shelf that's higher up above my desk. I said, measure the the temperature up there. And she's like, well, I don't want to put her up there. She wouldn't like that. She likes sitting right on my desk with me and watching me while I work. No, she doesn't. Like, I, it's just now we have a situation again where the tarantula isn't getting the correct care because we erroneously think that the tarantula loves watching us surf the internet for, you know, whatever the heck we're doing or wa- loves watching us write out our papers. It's just not true. It may, maybe it reacts to the light. That could be a situation where the tarantula is recognizing the light of the screen and maybe that stimulates something. That I don't know, but it's certainly not that your tarantula loves spending quality time with you. So that's. That's the tricky part and why I haven't spoken about this one before is the fact that I'm not here to, you know, to ruin people's enjoyment of the hobby, to crush their beliefs. I mean, sometimes, again, when it's harmless, who cares? Let people think whatever they want. And again, maybe somewhere down the line, we actually do some studies on them and we prove them correct. I don't know. I'm just not seeing it now and I'm not seeing the studies now that back this up. But when it becomes a point where it actually inhibits their ability to handle the tarantulas or care for the tarantulas in a safe manner or provide them the type of environment that they need, then it becomes a problem. Then it becomes a hindrance. Then it becomes something that's a negative, not a positive. And I will say that the one spot where this really truly is a good thing is most people see tarantulas. I just had a guy on my YouTube channel yesterday go on. It was a G. Iringi video. And he said, man, we used to just smash these things and kill them Where when I was a kid. I can't believe people would pay money for that. That And it actually turned into a really good conversation I won't get into here, but the guy really opened up his mind. We had a really nice conversation. But that's an example of what people think about these animals. They don't. They think of them as bugs to be squashed, to be lit on fire, to be killed, to be flushed down toilets, to be vacuumed up. They have no love for them. So if thinking that you're feeling some type of emotion back from the pet, if anthropomorphizing the animal allows you to identify with it more, to see it more as an animal that deserves your care, deserves your love, then that's a good thing. That You can't take that away. 
And I think that if, you know, for a lot of us who are in the hobby, even those of us who are a little more based in logic and science, I think some of us fall into that trap as well. I know that, that, like I said earlier, I talk to mine. I do care about them. When one of mine, like my Ophilipinus, when she got ill, that bothered me. That's, that's, I do have feelings for them, but I don't need to have those feelings reciprocated. My feelings are strong enough. Like I, I can care for the animal. I don't need that to be, I, I don't need to see the animal caring back for me for it to be valid. I think for a lot of people though, they do need that. They want that. It helps them in the hobby. It helps them see them not as monsters. I know a lot of people that come from being arachnophobic, they get into the hobby, start talking about how they see them as awesome creatures and they have a lot of love for them. That's a great thing. So there are obviously benefits of it. There are obviously good points. I just worry sometimes when it gets in the way of having logical discourse about problems you may be, may be having with your husbandry or your setups or you know issues with handling. Again, I go back to that point Poor young lady who fell asleep and crushed hers when she was in bed. That's a terrible situation because she definitely, she was bawling as she's talking to me. She's telling me how she can't stop crying. And I felt terribly about it. But then I had to kind of come back and go, but here's the deal. Like, that's just, I get it. I get where you're going with it. But the tarantula wasn't getting anything out of it. So I think we always need to put the tarantulas first. We need to keep an open mind on both sides. I think the folks that feel like they have more emotional intelligence, feel like they show some of those human characteristics, need to have an open mind that maybe they're misreading some of the stuff. And I do think that those of us that are more like, nope, they're just mindless animals need to kind of have an open mind that I think there's probably more to these guys that meet CI. And anybody that has spent a lot of time with tarantulas, raising tarantulas, studying them, we do see glimpses and signs here and there of things that we can't quite explain that show maybe there's a little more going on in those little brains than we thought. So anyway, that's my spiel on the anthropomorphization of tarantulas. It's hopefully it'll allow me to answer some comments when people, you know, post stuff about them and, and in a way that's sensitive and not bashing their beliefs. That's not what this is about. That's never what this is about. It's more just trying to cover it in a way that people recognize that there's good points, there's bad points. It can be harmless, it can be harmful, and being able to kind of deduce when you're falling into one category or the other. And speaking of caring deeply for these animals, I've had a lot of well wishes and hopeful comments and emails from people about my Ophilipinus female. Obviously, if you've listened to the last podcast, she had a sack. I took the babies away. She created a phantom sack. She carried it to the point where she wasn't eating, wasn't drinking, and I found her very unresponsive and was trying to bring her back, put her in the old tarantula ICU, trying to hydrate her, get her eating. Well, long story short, she did not make it. I came in the other night, and she looked in a really bad spot. Not a full death curl, but her abdomen was shriveling. She wasn't drinking. So I flipped her over and started using a pipette to deliver water directly to her mouth parts, hoping that maybe if she was too weak to drink that would help and she did start wiggling around and it seemed to be she was seemed to be more active she was moving her legs trying to right herself so I'm like all right this is good because a moment ago she wasn't even moving at all so I did it a couple times hopefully gave her some water filled her up a little bit flipped her back over the next morning I came back in and she was completely unresponsive so as is often the case with spiders you can never tell when they're quite dead I didn't want to freeze her because again I was still holding hopes uh, holding out hope that she might turn around well, by that afternoon, it was probably in the hot, the low 80s in the transform, very hot. And I took down her enclosure again to check on her. And there was definitely an odor in it. So she had unfortunately passed. So incredibly bummed about this one. I don't like losing anything, especially an old female, especially a female that quite frankly, if you go over to my YouTube channel right now, it's the one featured on the header and the YouTube channel. She was the one featured and my header for my website. I mean, this was a very important spider to me. So talking about feeling sentimental about animals, we obviously care about them greatly. And this one's going to hurt. And especially because I... I look back at it and I can definitely see where I would do something different this time. It's, you know, I, 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 
we got all the slings out of her, which was great. And, you know, obviously she has spread her genes and I have some of them left. So I'll be raising them up, praying that I get another female to replace her. But at the same time, had I had her in a different enclosure, had I put her in something that I could have just left the slings with her and allowed them to kind of disperse on their own and I could have taken them out, then it would have been a totally different story. I think she would have went through the whole cycle of being a mommy. She would have gone back to eating and we would have been fine. So lesson learned, I'll be doing some of this stuff differently when I breed now. I've already got a couple that I'm starting to move into more Spartan enclosures. It'll allow me to corral the babies when they come. They usually stay right around this. They don't usually flee right off the bat. But I will say when I had my, when I bred my Carabina Varicicolor, we left the babies with them. And then I, the, the reason why we took the babies out when we did is because I found babies outside of the enclosure. So I was like, all right, that's it. We're moving them. And I just have to be careful that I don't have a situation where that happens when I'm not home and they're out all over the place or they're in an enclosure that doesn't allow me to find them easily. But anyway, that's going to be something I will change when breeding. And I do plan on breeding in the future that we'll do differently moving on. But it's it stinks. It's it's I'm not happy about it. It's very upsetting. And I've already talked to a couple of people about it that it's, you know, one of those it's not going to be a high point in the hobby for me because I do. It's something I think the biggest issue for me was it was something I worried about from day one that what happens, you take the babies with them and the mom like doesn't reset. And then I just proved it and saw it in my own collection. So anyway, live and learn. And again, to go on the anthropomorphizing part of it, I don't think it's so much, I, I had somebody go, oh, she, she died of a broken heart. I don't think it's a broken heart. I think whatever mechanism, whatever instinct in them causes them to be good mothers that creates that motherly nurturing nature. I think when I took the babies away, it wasn't able to reset and go, all right, my babies are gone. I need to move on and start fattening up again and get myself healthy. It was more, I need to stay and keep my sack. I need to protect my sack. So when I took the sack away, she just created another sack out of substrate and carried that one. So Again, very, very sad, very upset about it. Thank you for all that took the time to, you know, hope that she did well. Wish it had a better outcome, but unfortunately she did not make it. So that should about do it for this one. Nice 45-minute one. Uh, again, thank you so much for everybody that takes the time to listen. I enjoy doing these, and they're kind of therapeutic for me, so I appreciate it. And a lot of folks have been heading over to YouTube to say hi, which I really appreciate. It's been cool. I am caught up on my YouTube comments finally. Holy mackerel, was that a mess. I don't know what happened, but I somehow missed a whole batch of them and ended up up going back and it was like 200 comments and I remember with the last one because I posted a bunch of videos kind of with a short distance of each a short time span of each other and I remember being like wow didn't really get as many comments as I usually get this is kind of nice <laughs> a little vacation and then I realized no I missed a whole bunch I'm not sure how I did it but I ended up answering all those so we're back caught up I am creating a bank of videos I have about five of them completely ready to go now I'm hoping to get another two done this weekend which will give me a nice bank as far as I can have one come out a week and have time to work on some of the longer stuff that I plan on doing, which is great. So that'll take some stress off. And again, self-imposed stress. Nobody's really pressuring me. And it's me just kind of liking to keep that weekly schedule. So anyway, as always, you can find me at TomsBigSpiders.com. You can find me in TomsBigSpiders on YouTube. I have a channel there with a lot of videos if you want to see like images to go along with some of the stuff I'm talking about. That'll do it for this one. As always, hope everybody stays safe and we'll catch you all next time.